As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. It's straight out of Cobham, a show about Chelsea FC from The Athletic. On this episode, another draw against Brighton leaves more questions than answers. There's a look ahead to the final part of the Blues and Spurs January triple header. Chelsea have the best managers and the best goalkeeper, according to FIFA. We round up the rest of the Blues news and do a quiz. Available for free wherever you get your podcasts and ad-free on The Athletic, this is Straight Out of Cobham. Tired, clunky and awkward. Listener, it could well be a description of my intros over the last few weeks. In this instance, though, I'm referring to the headline of one of our panellists' post-match piece. Uh, The piece in question was written for The Athletic after the Brighton game. The man who penned it is with us now. Morning, Dominic Fifield. Good morning. How are you doing? All right, thanks. Yeah, Uh, bring in the positivity by pointing out Chelsea's favourable run-in. Simon Johnson's also with us. Hi, Simon. Hello. <laughs> uh, and I'm Matt, by the way. Hi. Uh, later, we'll get the lowdown on Spurs from the Athletics' Charlie Eccleshare. But first on our agenda today is that midweek trip to the South Coast. They celebrated the, the, the draw in the end uh, uh, in the whistle as if they had won. That's, that's the adversity we normally overcome and, and you have to normally also overcome, but we are, we are tired. It's, it's, uh, it's a long spell now. Brighton and Hove Albion won, Chelsea won then. Pretty wretched performance from the Blues who missed the chance to go second and are now looking over their metaphorical shoulder rather than up at the teams above them. Uh, Dom, you were covering this game. We've had a couple of days to digest it now. Is it, is it the crisis that uh, the initial reaction on Chelsea Twitter made it out to be? Crisis. Well, it's not it's not great. One win in seven league games. I mean, as as Tuchel was very quick to point out post match that there have been victories in cup competitions, not least the two semi finals against Tottenham Hotspur within their recent sequence. So it's not all doom and gloom. Um, but they do look very very stretched and tired and knackered, and he. I think he's he's right in in pointing that out. I mean, he's in his mind, it's a very simple scenario. Chelsea have played too many games in a short space of time, and they've had COVID and injuries to contend with as well. 
um, and they are knackered mentally and physically. Um, and they looked at it. I think I made the point in the piece, there are probably two teams in the Premier League that you don't want to play when you are feeling up against it in terms of fatigue. And Manchester City, one of them, they played them on Saturday. Uh, Brighton are probably the other. And I mean, Brighton were superb in both games against Chelsea. And, and I'm actually I'm actually just glanced at the the data from from Tuesday's game and it's very very deceptive it actually suggests that Chelsea had the majority of the ball and the majority of their chances it, if you watch that game you wouldn't have thought that at all because Brighton were the more composed team until really the last 10 minutes when the three substitutions made a difference for Chelsea and instilled a bit of urgency and energy onto the onto the pitch um and and therein actually there is probably some criticism of of Tuchel in terms of changes, in terms of some of the selections of late, um, he hasn't necessarily been. He had reacted quick enough, maybe on during games or even with his original selections to freshen things up as much as he maybe might have done. You know, these things are you can debate as much as you like, but the reality is the group that he he picked and started with on Tuesday night at the Amex looked pretty off it from the start. They were very lucky to to, to go ahead. 1-0 at the break. Um, it didn't feel like they were the dominant team at any point, really, until that last 5-10 minutes. Um, and a point, actually, in the circumstances, wasn't actually a bad result. Simon, a lot of people were pointing to, to the bench, and Dom's mentioned the substitutions. They all came at once with 10 minutes to go. Undoubtedly, world-class players amongst those substitutes. But just looking through the names, you've got Kovacic, Exhausted, having been in, injured. Pulisic, totally out of form. Werner, maybe never has been in form. Havertz, been injured, been ill. So it's not as if he, he had a, a whole load of options that he could have brought on at half-time or could have given starts to otherwise. And, and basically what I'm saying in a roundabout way is his, his argument about the fatigue is legitimate, isn't it? Given the amount of games they've played in the, in the time they played it in. Yeah, and uh, I mean, one of the sort of great contrasts um, between the two teams was, was the stat that since the 1st of December, Chelsea played 15 times the Brighton's nine. Um, that doesn't totally negate how poor Chelsea were in, in both games, but it, it does give an insight into why Brighton looked the fresher on, on both occasions. Um, they they benefited from two significant breaks during December, partly because obviously games were called off, of course, um, whereas Chelsea had to play basically every three or four days. But I, I just think that fatigue is a genuine factor, but it's not the be-all and end-all of what's going on here. Um, it looks to me like they've stopped enjoying their football. You know, it's it, it feels like football's become a grind to them. And, and nothing was more alarming, of course, than than Ziyech's goal celebration or, or lack of. Um, I, I'm not quite sure why he's why he himself is upset. Um, one can obviously sort of think, well, it's because he doesn't feel he's being played enough or he, he took exception to the criticism that Tuchel made post-Man City about the, the attacking players weren't good enough. But he was right. I mean, how on earth Ziyech could remotely sort of defend his performance against Man City... And, and think he was hard done by. Yeah, I have some sympathy for him in terms of him being always substituted. I, I thought it was a bit harsh on him on 
against Brighton because whilst he wasn't amazing, he was one of the better players, especially after he scored. Like before that, he was horrific. Then he scored a goal out of nowhere and, and it seemed to re-energise him and, and he seemed to be a bit more involved, even if it was a heated debate with uh, Lukaku over a certain pass, which I, again, I thought betrayed the moves that's in the camp. I mean, I, I didn't think it was a a bad flashpoint. I didn't think it was a particularly bad pass. Um, Lukaku's obviously in a bit of a strop at the moment for a number of reasons. His, um, his reaction since that, that apology, um, you know, I'm going to make it up, you know, essentially I'm going to make it up to you. Well, we're still waiting, Romelu, um, and, and perhaps stop throwing your arms up in the air every five minutes and, and get on with playing football. Um, I have sympathies for him as well because his teammates aren't. Doesn't sound like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you got, you, I, I think you got to sort of look at it in a balanced way and that he should be criticised, but also there's an element of, why aren't his teammates looking to pass to him more? I don't quite understand it. There were there were times in the second half where they passed the ball up to him and he held it up and passed it to a teammate and, and suddenly Chelsea were on the move and he just went, this is what he's in the team for. But they don't seem to be looking for him enough. But wasn't that, that ZH flashpoint? Because that was, that was three minutes before the interval, wasn't it? And, and yeah. ZH gets the ball and... Lukaku wants a certain ball played to him to get the best out of him, and actually, yeah. what ZH does is he forces him wide with a pass. That's, yeah. that's, and isn't that isn't that what you just said in a nutshell? That that yes, Lukaku should be probably doing a bit more, but actually, his teammates aren't really giving him the ammunition to do that because they're putting him in areas of the pitch he doesn't really want to be. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the the, the why I I sort of found that. Exchange pretty strange. Was that at least at least the pass had gone to? Him. Yeah, well, true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like come on, come on, Robert. At least you got a pass at last. <laughs> no, but you could see why he was annoyed because he obviously wanted it down the middle rather than towards the touchline. And it, it, what what could he do with that? But I, I just thought it was uh, that exchange, which which actually carried on talk. They carried on talking, didn't they? Just before the second half restarted. Again, to sort of give this impression that all is not well between everybody, and and this is what happens when you have a string of bad results as well. You know, it's it's hard to maintain that happy-go-lucky, uh, everyone loving life um, exterior when when you're finding weeds hard to come by. Yeah, I guess there's another factor for Ziyech in that he's probably watching his Moroccan teammates playing in Afghan and, and thinking I ought to be there as well, and I'm not, and I'm not particularly enjoying what I'm doing here. Um, Dom, you pointed out in, in your post-match piece that maybe a few days off, which Thomas Tuchel pointed out he will be giving them, or they are on one of them as we record today, uh, and then a little trip to Abu Dhabi might be just what they need to kind of refresh things. That's a, that's a positive way of looking at it. Well, the Abu Dhabi bit, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's maybe that's me being optimistic. I mean, they'll benefit more from having a complete week off, obviously, um, which will be their their winter break this is all very confusing but it's the last weekend in January effectively they'll get off and they'll have the the FA Cup the following week so they don't get the two weekends off that some Premier League clubs will have um, I mean yeah they will I mean the two days off it'll be really interesting to see what effect two days completely devoid of football um, whether that refreshes this group ahead of Sunday um, and it and it, it might do, you know, it might it, it might just be something as simple as that. I was amazed how quickly Chelsea recovered from the first 
match against Brighton towards the end of December and they looked absolutely running on fumes and and yet revitalised and, and, and performed very, very well against Liverpool a few days later and had a lot more energy and dynamism about them then. So So maybe a couple of days, 48 hours without football will have that effect again ahead of Spurs. Um, but the, the bottom line is that they have played, I think it's 18 matches in 59 days, which in normal circumstances, yeah, it's, not, it's, it's a lot, but it's, it's, it's playing every midweek effectively since the, the towards the end of, of November. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a heavy workload, but it's not necessarily disastrous, but, when you've got COVID around the scene as well and, and denying you players and, and forcing some to come back with knocks, etc., it does have a cumulative effect and, and, and will ensure that, the, that fatigue is more of an issue. I think I think their previous 18 games have been spread over something like 87 days. Uh, so, you know, another five weeks effectively or, or, or four weeks, are, um, which is a lot more manageable. Um but you know, it's it is what it is. Brighton Brighton will turn around and say, Well, we've got a much smaller squad and we were without Eve Basuma at the African Cup of Nations and he was absolutely outstanding at Stanford Bridge. They were without Lewis Dunk, um, their captain and talisman, and Adam Lalana wasn't playing, and they even started Mope and Trussard on the bench. So that you know, even with their elements of their second eleven, they outplayed Chelsea for long periods. Before we move on from this game, Simon, is is Thomas Tuchel under pressure yet? Yeah, yeah, I, I think, um, and and he's showing signs of it as well. Um, in in press press conferences is a great example. The perhaps perhaps uh, listeners aren't privy to every single exchange because obviously some some questions are asked off camera, but um, he's some of his responses are a bit more chippy, a little bit more sort of biting back at the questioner you know even though they're sort of perfectly innocent questions um he knows what the standards are at chelsea. he knows chelsea's history he knows that when there's a downturn when a champions basically when top 4 is at risk um that that a manager starts coming under scrutiny now are we sort of approaching the end game of course not he's got a lot of credit in the bank but chelsea's running results is poor in the league he, he was very quick to point out the other night. He went, "Oh yeah, but you know we've won in cup competitions." But yeah, that that that's that's true. But no Chelsea manager in the Abramovich era is 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 going to be um, getting away with or not coming under scrutiny for a run of one winning seven or I think it's three in eleven. I mean, it's it it's this is re- this is a really really bad run. And on on the plus side, and sort of touching on the sort of Dom's point. Uh, about sort of Chelsea's revival between Brighton and Liverpool, I, I almost sort of think that Tottenham is is a is a great game for Chelsea to have. It, it's it's a game where they know they have to turn up in, particularly now after you know with the gap in the table and their position in the top four under under pressure. That this is a must win game for them. They, they they can't feel sorry for themselves. They've got to get up for this one. I thought his his mannerisms for the first time on the touchline he looked he looked knackered as well he looked yeah. as if it was getting to him and that I thought that was quite telling um, his post match interview was very very deflated and until actually he, he was he was it was put to him that he did look down and then he suddenly reanimated and almost made the effort to 
to show that he he, he you know he has still got the energy and, and desire and the ambition etc um but i thought on the during the game for someone who's usually he's not quite antonio conte manic but he's 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 quite he's up and down in these he's he's bellowing instructions usually screaming at uh, Callum hudson Adoy, and there wasn't very little of that actually it was it was a uh, he spent a lot of time sitting down talking to Zolt Lowe and his and the, and the technical staff on the bench and, and looked a bit deflated by it all as well. Well, given the magnitude of the game and given Antonio Conte will be there too, you expect the fourth official will be a busy man come Sunday. We'll look ahead to Chelsea versus Tottenham next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Chelsea versus Tottenham again then. Episode 3 of the January miniseries. Probably won't see any key characters killed off, but there might well be a big reveal in terms of who's likelier to finish in the top four. Uh, Listen, this is why I leave the words to the chaps. Uh, Joining us now to talk Tottenham is Charlie Eccleshare, who covers Spurs for The Athletic. You'll know him too from his fine work on the Totally Football Show and Football Clichés podcast. Uh, Charlie, we're talking just hours after the amazing end to that game on Wednesday at Leicester. I get the impression that that kind of finish wouldn't have happened under, under Nuno or even under Jose. No, probably not. Under Jose, more likely the other way around. They had this habit of conceding late goals. And under Nuno, the idea of there being five goals in a game is just so ridiculous that I, I, you know, I can't really comprehend that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's probably not uh, something they want to keep having to do every week. I don't think it's that sustainable, but it was an amazing finish. And I mean, it's amazing how much it changes the mood and the complexion of, of Conte's start a little bit because... There was a lot of optimism. Then the Chelsea Carabao Cup semi-finals were so dispiriting the way they were kind of just swatted aside, like it wasn't even a contest. I think had they then lost yesterday, it would. I mean, I was surprised because going into the, you know, after Chelsea by the kind of ferocity against Conte almost and against the team for what I felt was just losing to a superior side. And I know it's, you know, obviously it's never nice to lose to one of your rivals, but I didn't think it was so catastrophic. So had they lost yesterday, it was. Um, I think there would have been quite a lot of anger and frustration. Whereas now they've won the game, people are looking at the league table and suddenly thinking, hold on a minute, we're actually in a really strong position for the top four. And it makes the Chelsea game a bit of a free hit for them. Yeah, so it's eight points behind with with four games in hand. From what you've seen so far, do you think that they're likely to bridge the gap to Chelsea? Is that even a thought or is it just about top four? It doesn't matter who we catch for it. I think it is more about top four realistically and that again looks really healthy given their gap to West Ham which isn't much and how many games in hand they've got so I I don't I think given how much better Chelsea looked than Spurs over those two games in the Carabao Cup I think most fans realistically wouldn't expect to finish above them Um, and even though 
as you say, it's only eight points. Some of those games in hand aren't that straightforward. But it, but the main thing is top four, and that definitely does fill on, which given where they were when Conte took over, I mean, they weren't actually that many points off it, but the whole mood of the place by the end of the Nuno uh, interregnum um, it is it's quite a turnaround. Is Conte actually happy at Spurs, do you think? I mean, he's doing classic Conte stuff, but but playing the hits a little earlier than they normally come out. Is that just because it's January and he'd like some new players? Yeah, I also think it's Conte. I don't imagine he's ever really that happy. I mean, he seems like the kind of guy who even on his wedding day would be a bit like, yeah, but, you know, what about the honeymoon? And then, you know, what about this? And we've got to make sure this is right. You know, he's just an incredibly demanding, exhausting character to be around. Um but does seem to yield results. So happiness and Conte, I don't know. But I I certainly think he... I think it, the Chelsea defeat, especially the first leg, hit him, hurt him really badly. I think I think he genuinely felt humiliated, going back to a former employer and it not even being a contest. It was so one-sided and I think that angered him so much. And I think that's why that press conference straight afterwards and his Sky interviews were strikingly negative Um you know, given it was so early in his reign and given it wasn't that bad a result. You know, it was a 2-0 defeat to Chelsea. But I think his mood definitely would have been helped by last night. But that said, I don't think, you know, I don't think he'll have seen that and been like, oh, great, yeah, now we don't need to make signings. I think he'll be like, no, we won, but we still absolutely need to make signings to, you know, take the next step. Will the, will the first leg of the, the Carabao Cup semi-final in particular inform the team that he picks on Sunday, do you think? There won't be any kind of random Matt Doherty appearing somewhere where you wouldn't expect him to, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he's got to just take the positives from Leicester and and try and use that. And Doherty actually came on in the second half and... and I mean, it's such a different game. I mean, he was basically this sort of agent of chaos, but playing in his actual position as a right wing back. And he did make a big difference, just kind of charging into the area and no one was really tracking him. And I do wonder, Chelsea are this, from an outsider's perspective anyway, and I know the results haven't been so good, but they're this well-oiled machine and everyone seems to know exactly what they're doing. I do just wonder if um, having someone like that who is a bit chaotic might throw them a little more than trying to be regimented and defensive. So we might see something like that, but I, I don't think he's got the squad at the moment with injuries to throw too many curveballs that he doesn't have that many options available to him. So I think we'll see a very similar team to what we did um, on Wednesday night against Leicester. Um, I don't think any of the injured players will be back. So yeah, maybe that, but nothing nothing too zany. I think he'll probably stick with a 3-5-2. The other thing is whether Bergvine comes in the team after scoring those two late goals. That is that is quite a big decision and that could influence whether he goes 3-4-3 or 3-5-2. But I think he'll want the three, uh, the three guys in midfield to try and stiffen that area up against Chelsea. Charlie, can I ask about a couple of the players uh, in particular? Bergwijn, you just mentioned... There were lots of talk that he was going to go to Ajax next week and presumably that deal is is, is now off. And on another player, um, Harry Kane has been so off colour all season and was in the two games against Chelsea in the in the Carabao as well. He had 10 shots against against Leicester. Is that him back to his best or is he just more profligate than ever? Well, we'll start with Bergwijn. I mean, he... Yeah, the sense already was that Ajax weren't going as high as what Tottenham wanted... And you feel that's only going to be a more difficult um, gap to bridge because Spurs can go a little bit higher now, given that his stock has risen quite substantially after those two late goals. And I mean, he was one who, 
Spurs were willing to let go, but it would have been more reluctant. It wasn't a kind of Delhi or Ndombele situation where they were really keen to get rid of them. It was more, uh, he's one of our few saleable assets. We'll sort of begrudgingly take it so we can do some uh, some business of our own. Yeah, now that looks a lot less likely. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether he kicks on. I mean, it does. We, we kind of assume he will, but it doesn't always happen like that. I mean, Lucas Moura, after that hat-trick in Ajax, it wasn't like he was then, you know, changed particularly as a player he carried on more or less the same and it's only more recently he's uh he's made some quite substantial improvements Kane I don't think last night was totally isolated I know he was really poor in those Chelsea games but there have been signs of improvement he does look fitter and sharper the Liverpool game just before Christmas he was way way better scored did miss a few and I know this is a bit of a cliche but for, for much of the season he wasn't even getting chances so I think at least in in that Liverpool game he was getting chances, which felt like a step forward. Um, he then had a really good goal, perfectly good goal disallowed against Southampton. And then yesterday, yeah, I mean, it is encouraging because his calling card for a long time, he was getting an average, he was averaging like five shots a game in 2017-18, which is just crazy. And it, and actually his numbers were up to about four in Premier League games under Conte even before last night. So yeah, now that's going to be uh, even higher than that. So I think he is like... <laughs> He looks a lot better. He feels way fitter, and and I think he's um, he's almost been surprised by how quickly that Conte effect has kicked in with him. But it is such a big step up. I mean, that's the thing with all of this is that I found you know in in a way Spurs and Kane have been insulated in his first league games because Liverpool aside and Liverpool were kind of COVID ravaged and looked a bit knackered. The quality of the opposition has been such that they've kind of looked okay. But then Chelsea was such a wake-up call because they looked so second best and Kane looked so peripheral. So it will be really revealing on Sunday both where Spurs are at and where Kane's at. Because if he if he has another game like he did in those other Chelsea games, I guess you could say, well, he's not getting the service. But I think you're also then thinking, well, does he not need to be stepping up? Um, and he shouldn't just be doing it against um, teams like Leicester. And I know that sounds harsh, but that's how high the standards are for Harry Kane. We expect so much from him. Hi, Charlie. Um, how much do you think the, the psychological uh, impact plays on, on this game in terms of Tottenham's record at Stamford Bridge? And, and, and secondly, um, can you go on record to say which uh, press room serves the best food, please? <laughs> That is a, that this is, is a the level one. of level of conversation we get on this podcast, by the way. <laughs> when I'm well, Sinai I did have this debate in, in the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium last last week, and I, I would go to Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. I, I think the whole package, the fact that you can, it's more leisurely. You're kind of sat down, whereas Chelsea, the food is of an exceptional quality, but I don't know, it's not as spacious, and it feels like you're being rushed through a little bit. Tottenham is it, it for me. For me, it has that edge. And that People is the real quiz, interested we in know. This. They're not interested in this. <laughs> they are. This they're fascinated. The fans, this is what the fans want to know. Yeah, this is the real behind-the-scenes stuff that the Athletic <laughs> brings you. The, 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 these these key details. Uh, and then on the less important issue of uh, the psychological block. Yeah, I do think that's something. And I, and I think that's also the flip side. It seems to galvanise Chelsea. Because a lot of Spurs fans watched the way Brighton took the game to Chelsea, played really well, could have won that game and looked like they weren't inhibited in the same way. So a lot of Spurs fans were saying, OK, well, last week you were telling us that we lost to Chelsea because they're the Champions League holders and they're just much better than us. Well, then why are Brighton able to go and um, perform as well as they did? And I do think Chelsea, they do seem to have a bit of a swagger when they play Spurs. Like They're so used to beating them, especially at Stamford Bridge. 
And I think generally as well, you know, Spurs, they beat United at Old Trafford last season. But, it, you know, for, for most teams, it is rare to go and win these big games away. And I wonder as well what effect the fact they've lost these two games um, so recently. I won, I don't know. I, 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 will that help them in some ways? Will that clarify for things? Will they have learned from those games? Or does it just play into this slight inferiority complex that it always seems to go against them? at Chelsea but it, it will be interesting and I, and I don't know as well how much it's just a psychology thing and how much just a quality thing because certainly in that first leg you looked at the two teams and, in the, and I remember in the second leg as well I tweeted that you know the Chelsea bench pretty much everyone on the bench would have had a case to get in that Spurs team that day so I don't know how much it is psych- psychology and how much it's just that the Chelsea players are are of a higher quality We'll find out on Sunday, I guess. Charlie, thanks so much for your time. Enjoy your butter chicken on Sunday pre-match and and hopefully (laughs) don't enjoy the game too much. We'll speak to you soon. Cheers. (laughs) Speak soon, guys. Simon, from a a Chelsea perspective, it sounds like there's a little bit of good news injury-wise. Trevor Chalobah hopefully back in training before the game, whether he'll be available or not. Andreas Christensen, maybe not too far away. And and Rhys James, apparently, back out on grass, as they say. Yeah, um... I I still think it's a little bit of a question mark whether they're back in time for for Tottenham, but I, I just think I just think sort of like the fact they're gonna they're gonna they're back in training already, um, and of course got this winter break coming up. It, it just gives it just gives Chelsea sort of more of a hope after in terms of when Chelsea get back up and running um, next month because they're gonna need everybody. There's definitely signs of fatigue. Um, and the more Tuchel can rotate, the better. Uh, question for both of you. One word answer, please. Dom, you can go first. Who's likely to stay in their current job longer, Tuchel or Conte? <laughs> uh, Tuchel. Interesting. Simon? Well, I'll say Conte then. <laughs> just, it's tough, isn't just, it? It's just part of the game. <laughs> it's uh, four thirty UK time for Chelsea versus Tottenham Hotspur at Stamford Bridge. Of course, we'll react to that in Monday's pod. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds's small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after fifteen seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Elsewhere in Chelsea news, Thomas Tuchel and Emma Hayes were named the best coaches and Edouard Mendy the best goalkeeper at the FIFA Best Awards this week, football's <laughs> governing body, seemingly desperate to be associated with the word best. Um, Simon, Dom, anybody got anything to say about these awards? It's nice to win them, but I mean, they're just nonsense really, aren't they? It's so last year. 
thing is, it's just like you know, whatever. Like Chelsea, Chelsea got to worry about the here and now, not not sort of dwell on. And, and this is how Tuchel's been talking about all the awards and and the the big fuss about about sort of Mendy not being included in Ballon d'Or and et cetera, et cetera. He, he's always been pretty consistent in this regard going, he, he doesn't really like awards. It's all about the team, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's a fun, well, I'm not sure it's even fun. It's a debate on Twitter, isn't it? When, whenever these awards are handed out, but really in the grand scheme of things, it, it doesn't mean very much, I don't think. I liked, I liked Emma Hayes' reaction when she, she won. And, and likewise, the Senegalese team's reaction to, to Mendy winning was, was nice. And also the fact that Thomas Tuchel was still clad in his Chelsea tracks. I can't remember what time of the night it was <laughs> that he was accepting the award, but clearly sleeps in the thing. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of Emma Hayes, her team were finally back in action on Wednesday night. They won 4-2 against West Ham in the League Cup quarterfinals in what was their first action of 2022. Uh, as the Athletics' Abby Patterson pointed out on Twitter, the goal scorer is read like a, a Scottish version of Daft Punk. Harder, harder, Cuthbert, harder. Um, Penilla Harder, the star of the show, with a hat trick. Here's what Emma Hayes had to say about her. I thought Penilla had a fantastic game, and she set the tone from the start. I thought her and Fran, their relationship improved the longer the game went on. I thought she found a lot of the right spaces, especially the second half. I thought her quality in and out of possession, you know, was excellent. Well, the women return to WSL duty on Sunday when they go to Brighton. They beat the Seagulls 3-1 in the corresponding fixture back in October. The men's under-23s were beaten by Crystal Palace, much to Dom's delight. Uh, that was earlier this week. They don't play again until Monday next week when they host Manchester City at Kings Meadow. The under-18s, meanwhile, have a derby day with Arsenal on Saturday. All right, we know why we're all really here. It's our weekly quiz and it comes next. Right, chaps, perfect scores last week from Messrs. Toomey and Parking. So huge. Uh, excuse me, we'll have none of that. Thank you very much. It was Parking and Fifield last week. Oh, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. I seem to be on three quizzes in a row on this. Slightly alarmingly. Mm. Simon Johnson, I'm sure yeah. you've had time to do this scheduling. Lucy can investigate that, I'm sure it was doing. But anyway, that's one of the questions is not who did the quiz last week. Um, as you can imagine, it's Chelsea. Chelsea <laughs> v Spurs. I got right. <laughs> I already got it wrong. <laughs> I think I can't make my mind up about this quiz. It's either really easy or really hard. So we'll find out in I don't know five minutes' time. Simon, you're up first. How many of his forty games in charge of Chelsea did former Blues and Spurs boss Andre Villas-Boas win? Sorry, can you repeat that? How many of his forty games in charge of Chelsea did former Blues and Spurs boss Andre Villas-Boas win? Crikey. Um, 40 games. Let me think. I'm going to go with 19. Oh, it's such a shame. Don, would you like to steal it? Oh. 20. 20 is correct. Oh! <laughs> well, you kind of, you kind of gave it away. With yeah, the, uh... I did. I did. All right, I'll give you half a point for that, Don, because I did kind of give it away a bit there. Um, 
Here's your first question, Dom. Uh, which former Spurs goalkeeper was on the bench for Chelsea in their 1-0 win at White Hart Lane in 2004? Um, could you repeat the question, please? <laughs> which former Spurs goalkeeper was on the bench for Chelsea in their 1-0 win at White Hart Lane in 2004? Was it Neil Sullivan? It was Neil Sullivan. Incredible. One and a half nil going into the second question for Johnson, which is, who was the last Spurs player to score against Chelsea? Oh, good question. Oh, good question. I'm trying to think of bloody... Started to... uh, (laughs) I'm trying to think of who scores... Has Tottenham ever scored? No. Uh, Not for a while. Uh, Son. It's not Son, Dom. Can you steal it? (sighs) No. Lucas Moura? No, it was Eric Lamella in the League Cup tie in September last season. Uh, Okay. So this takes us to your second question, Dom. How many Chelsea players were booked during the infamous battle at the bridge game with Spurs that finished 2-2 in 2016? Oh, dear, dear, dear. I wasn't even there. Uh, the majority were Tottenham players. Um, four? No, Simon, do you want to steal it? For reference, there were nine Spurs players booked. Three. <laughs> Three is correct. There you go. You're back well on side. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could, I could have done the the, the Spurs one as well because I nine. was there. It's nine three, nine three, but Chelsea got the bigger fine from the Stand FA us. for failing to control the players because they'd been punished quite oh, a few yeah. times. In fairness, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's going to happen when you've got Diego Costa in your team. That's, yeah. that's just inevitable. Um, okay. So Simon's on the board with a point. So uh, by my maths, that makes it one and a half to Dom and one to Simon ahead of Simon's final question. Who scored the last of his three Chelsea goals in the 4-3 Blues win against Spurs at the bridge in February 1994? If you get this, I'll give you the money myself. Right, wait a minute. He scored three goals for Chelsea. Scored three goals for Chelsea, the final of which came in a 4-3 Chelsea win against Tottenham at Stamford Bridge in February 1994. Mal Donaghy. That is absolutely correct. I'm sorry to inform you there's no money uh, available, but the kudos (laughs) is immeasurable. How on earth do you know that? It was a a very memorable game, that one. Uh, And and yeah, partly because Mal Donaghy scored. Donaghy, Peacock. He's played as a free spirit behind the front two. That's a lovely ball for Donaghy. Can he make something for himself? And it's in. Off the inside of the post. And Chelsea, from a most unlikely route, see a way back into the game. But it was a bit of a, but it was a, bit of a relegation battle as well. Both teams were down, the, down near the bottom of the table. 
yeah, it was uh, Hoddle VR Diles, if memory serves right. Well, this isn't a relegation battle, but Dom, you've got to get this right, otherwise... This is a scandal. You'll be heading for defeat. <laughs> Absolute uh, scandal. All right, this is the easiest question of the quiz, so I think you get it. In 2014, who celebrated opening the scoring in a 4-0 win against Spurs by grabbing the corner flag and holding the small of his back, seemingly symbolising that he was, as his manager had implied in a leaked recording earlier that week, old? Samuel Eto'o. Well, that was a tap in, that. <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, still, I think you get the wind on, just about. Um, that was very funny, wasn't it? I really enjoyed that Samueletto season at Chelsea. He, was, um, he only ever scored at Stamford Bridge, but um, got a hat-trick against Man United. Am I making he that up? He yeah. did. Yeah, it, and I, I sort of always say that, because uh, he picked up an injury sort of around March time, and I think that, that had a big impact on Chelsea's ability to win the league because he was actually in, in really good form. It may have been may have been after the, the 6-0 win over Arsenal, for example. I just vaguely remember him getting injured for a crucial six-week period. Quality player, even at that age. And then he went to Everton and, and then started to look his age. Um, somebody who doesn't look their age, or maybe, no, I'm not even going to say that because that is not a, a good link. Before we go... <laughs> Before we go, let's get some plugs for what the chaps have been writing about. Uh, Simon, Armando Brogia slash Armando Broya is somebody who've been speaking a fair bit about on the podcast. You've taken a look at what happens next for him in terms of his Chelsea career. Yeah, because it is a major talking point with Southampton wanting to sign him permanently. And it's a very sensitive subject among Chelsea fans. And, and for good reason, having sort of sold a lot of the family silver um, last summer, um, can they really sort of afford to let another youngster go? But it, it's a complex situation. Is it is it the best thing for Broher? Um, is it the best thing for Chelsea in terms of he's going to play more at Southampton? Realistically, you know, Chelsea have dug themselves a hole. They, they've they've basically got a bunch of strikers, bunch of attacking talent. They've paid an absolute fortune for that aren't performing. It's very difficult for a manager in that situation to drop them and put a 20-year-old, in relative terms, rookie in instead. For him, it's very difficult for him to handle that situation, even though I totally get from fans' point of view, they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, just make the change. That's what you're in the job to do. You can imagine there'd be a few sort of um, discussions going on um, between Board and Tuchel if, uh, if... if things like like that happen. So it's a really, really awkward decision. Um, what's best for Broya? What's the best for his career? What's the best for Chelsea? Um, so, yeah, I, I'm just sort of making out that it's not as clear-cut as, as perhaps sort of fans and, and readers think. Also, you know, you have to look at it realistically and say, in terms of sellable assets, that the youngsters are the ones that the most easy to to do deals for because Chelsea, as I said, have, have spent a fortune on players who are on very high wages and will be very hard to get rid of. And we've seen that now for a few years now. I guess, Tom, it would be unlikely that they'd have both uh, Brozier and Conor Gallagher back around the first team next season. Is it is it a one or the other kind of situation? Well, I'd like to think not. I mean playing very different positions and I think I mean you'd like to think that, that that clubs generally would learn from this season 
and the way it's gone and the likelihood that, okay, we may not be quite as... Um, some of the rules may have changed for next year's inevitable spike in the latest, um, you know, metamorphosis of, of COVID-19. Um, but there will be presumably the risk of games being postponed and 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 a backlog of fixtures and squads being players being ruled out key players being ruled out and and you know it's it's a very very difficult situation as Sai has 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 painted there with in in Broha's situation but, but you, with hindsight some of the decisions made in the summer they will be regretting they must be Livramento going to I know last year of his contract difficult situation may not want you know may not be getting enough game time well actually if he had stayed around he probably would have got enough game time to, to persuade him that actually a he he could show his quality in this Chelsea team and b that, that he deserved he, he it makes sense him prolonging his stay at the club I know with Reese James on the scene it's it wasn't going to be easy and and but the reality is the sheer number of games that Chelsea have got they knew they were going to play potentially 60 matches this season really um and they've just been left exposed and having to having to play Aspilicueta on at right wing back or or a, or a winger at wing back and i just think they they will have looked at that and that there will be somebody somewhere will be regretting that decision to let him go to Southampton likewise possibly Gallagher okay these players may want have wanted to go last summer but then it's a case of the club having to persuade them that actually no you should stick about. You, you you will get your chances. You just got. It will happen this season because of COVID. Because of because of the number of games we're going to play. And I'm being simplistic. I'm, I'm. That's a very simplistic way of looking at it. And it's not. It wouldn't be an easy conversation to have with those guys. But I think it would have had they stayed. Chelsea would have been in a better position, arguably, possibly. You know, over the last month or so. I mean, obviously, there's there's always the possibility that those guys would have been ruled out with. COVID as well at the wrong times, but having more bodies in the building would have helped Chelsea get through this period. Um, and I just hope they don't make the same mistakes again. And that's coming from somebody that's actually benefited from that because Mark Gay's been brilliant at Palace and, and Conor Gallagher has obviously been become a talisman for that team and I've very much enjoyed his development. But, but from Chelsea's point of view, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense really. Do you think, Simon, that, that Chelsea will be more reluctant to loan players out next season then, given what's happened this season and, and what Dom's just spoken about? Uh, I mean, I suppose a lot of that depends on on sort of where COVID is going a little bit. You know, it's sort of... It's hard to have a crystal ball. This is sort of where you have some sympathy for them in some ways because... It's very hard to forecast, you know, Ben Chilwell being out for the season, Reese Jones picking up a long-term injury. It, it can also be a negative to have too many bodies around the place and and not kicking a ball. It, it's it's that that's why I'm sort of written a piece saying it's it's so it's so difficult. Um, I, I'm sure I'm sure Tuchel will will be aware of what's happened, but also that you know there are players that not even youth players that are just sitting around barely doing anything, whether that's because that's Tuchel's choice or whatever. But, you know, you've got Ross Barkley st still there, sort of, he's barely kicked the ball the last few months. So if you add like a, a whole bunch of youth players to that 
as talented as they are, it it can actually cause you a headache. That's why it's such a such a fine balance between strength of squad and having too many players just sort of sitting about the place. Personally, I don't want Bro- Brozier to go. I've, I've pronounced it both ways now in the same podcast. I, I think he's a fantastic talent and he's actually exactly what Chelsea need. Um, I, I think he'd be superb for, for Chelsea in terms of and, and sort of relieving some of the pressure of that rotation but the problem is is if if you play Brozier what, what's going on with Havertz and and Werner and Lukaku you know it's just uh, it's a bit of an awkward situation at, at Chelsea at the moment for the avoidance of doubt this is how you say Armando Broya slash Brozier according to a natural Albanian Broya uh, what else is on the agenda Simon well I, I've interviewed Jesse Marsh um, the former RB Leipzig, RB Salzburg, New York Red Bulls coach, obviously also worked with the, the US national team. Um, talking about a number of subjects, uh, of course, also, you know, obviously what happened at RB Leipzig, what went wrong, but um, I particularly enjoyed our chat, which took place in a swanky London hotel. I was very much out of place. Um about Erling Haaland, of course, a certain player that he worked with very much um, early in his career. Uh, he just joined for Mulder, uh, and he talks glowingly about his his character. Because from the outside, people talk about his um, his personality, whether he's got an ego, whether he's difficult to manage. But um, Jesse sort of talks about who uh, Erling Haaland really is and why he is heading to the top. Well, he's already at the top, but you know what I mean, to be one of the all-time greats. Um, I also liked a particular his his memories of a certain England one, USA one uh, in the World Cup of 2010, where he talked about uh, the bus being held up by some elephants on the way to the game. So if uh, if these managers to this day think they've got problems, uh, at least they haven't had to uh, deal with some elephants blocking their their pathway to a game of football. Athletic.com slash Chelsea pod, the place to go to sign up if you aren't currently a subscriber. Many thanks to Dom and to Simon for their company today and to Lucy for knocking it all together and to Charlie for joining us earlier as well. We'll be back on Monday to react to that Spurs game. Do join us then if you can until then. From all of us here, it's goodbye. The Athletic.